And you know, I got these expenses to do. Oh yeah, I do too, but I'm not gonna do them today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Kai is off today, but joining me is Marketplace reporter and the person who apparently also doesn't do her expenses, Samantha <laughs> Fields. Welcome back. Guilty. Thank you. It's great to be back with you, Kimberly. Um, for this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, where we answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. If you have a question about the economy, business, or tech, you can send it to us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 508-U-B-SMART. Okay, Sam, our first question is for you. And it comes from mm. listener Lori in California. And it's an email, so I shall read it. I have a question related to the coming increase in Social Security payments. People who are very low income and or disabled often receive other benefits that are based on income levels, Medicare, mm. Obamacare subsidies, Section 8 housing, food and energy subsidies, etc. As Social Security income rises based on cost of living increases, will there be a parallel increase in measures like federal poverty level, which may determine eligibility for benefits? This is something I hadn't thought of. Like, yeah, if your income goes up because of Social Security, could that disqualify you from stuff? Right, for sure. And uh, just sort of as everything is going up, does the threshold for what counts as being poor go up too? It's a great question that I hadn't thought about either. And it turns out the short answer is yes. The federal poverty guidelines are adjusted for inflation, much like social security payments are. Um, but whether there's an increase from one year to the next for both of these programs um, and how much that increase is, is based on how much the consumer price index goes up, which I know we talk about a lot. Um, but that's mm -hmm. that basket of goods and services that the government measures to get a sense of of the overall rate of inflation. It includes things like food, energy, clothes, cars, housing, things most of us spend money on. Um, and so we just got the adjustment to Social Security. As you mentioned, it's going to be about 8.7% next year, which is the highest in 40 years. Um, but we won't get the adjustment to the federal poverty guidelines until January. That's generally when it comes out. And then even once those new guidelines come out, they won't go into effect for sort of all of the different federal benefit programs all at the same time. That kind of depends also uh, program to program. So for example, it looks like the current income eligibility thresholds for SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, are in place through June of next year. Um, so yeah, the poverty guidelines will be adjusted for inflation also, uh, but there's a lag. And you know, that's hard for a lot of people. I'm stating the obvious here. Um, and even though they're adjusted for inflation, I think it's also worth mentioning just how low federal poverty guidelines are. They're just yeah. over $13,000 a year for a single person, which is nothing. Uh, about $28,000 a year for a family of four. You know, and a lot of benefit programs will go up higher than the poverty level, certainly, like 130% or 150%. But that is still low, too, you know? Um, so there are a lot of low-income people out there who are struggling to afford sort of basic things like food and housing and health care but who make too much to qualify for help and not enough to get by. So um, there's a great piece, by the way, I just want to give a little plug to our colleague and friend and another Make Me Smart guest host, Janet Wynn. She wrote a long, great piece about the poverty measure that is worth checking out that we will link for you. Yes. 
Um, all of Janet's pieces, <laughs> they're great. all of Janet's pieces are really good. Uh, so you yeah, should read all of them. Yes. We'll link all of Janet's pieces on the show page. <laughs> that right. number just always astonishes. No, I mean, that number always astonishes me, the poverty level, like when you see it, like oh, what me too. can Every you time. possibly do in your life for $13,000 a year? Absolutely I mean, nothing. And there <laughs> yeah. are people in our country who are below the poverty level. And, you know, that's, many. That's, that's and there are a lot of people who are just above it or just above even, you know, 150% and who really are struggling to get by sort of even before inflation. And now, you know, tied to the question, it's it's even harder. So uh, thank you for asking that. I'm glad to, to know the answer to that too, Lori. Um, and we can go on now to our next question. This one's for you, Kimberly, and it is uh, a voicemail. This is Pam calling from Dallas, Texas. And my question to you is, with the midterms coming up in just a few weeks, how effective are the television advertising? I am bombarded with it, and it is so biased. I just don't see why they are wasting perfectly good money on these ads. So make me smart. Thanks so much. Love your show. Well, that's another good Thank question. You, I'm excited Pam. to hear you answer it. You know, it's so ironic to get this question today because I I teach a, a class on government and media and we were mm. literally talking about this last night. How effective are these ads? I mean, it's debatable. Not yeah. really in most cases, but <laughs> that that was a short answer. Let me get the longer answer. So <laughs> according we're to this now. not <laughs> Yeah. According to the nonpartisan tracker Ad Impact, spending for ads this season has already passed the last two cycles. Uh, campaigns and PACs are projected to spend, wait for it, $9.7 billion by Election Day. And if you want uh, more details on that ad spending, the Wesleyan Media Project has a really good tracker. So, look, the fundraising this cycle means that GOP candidates are not raising as much money as they typically had have in the past. And so they're relying well, compared to the Democrats. Everybody's raising ungodly amounts of money. But anyway, yeah. compared to the Democrats. And so a lot of the GOP candidates are relying more on super PACs to advertise for them. Remember, these are these groups that are technically not connected to the campaigns, but can run issue advertisements that are effectively campaign ads. And so the candidates themselves are entitled to the lowest price for TV ads under federal hmm. law. So there's zero incentive for them not to just max that out as much as they can right. afford to do. PACs, on the other hand, have no such protection, but they also have a lot more money. But the result of that is that Republicans overall end up spending like 10 times more for some similar placement. It's also worth noting that a lot of these campaigns hire political consultants that are these mm. big companies that run elections as their main business. And many of them have their own in-house production companies that make these ads. So why would you possibly tell a candidate that an ad, you know, plastering the airwaves with ads is not effective when you can also make money off of those mm, ads wow. as well? So in terms of effectiveness, it's a moving target. So the research is kind of all over the place with this. 
it's a volume game in some case. Some in a piece in the New Republic, they said an individual ad's not going to have much impact, but if you're deluged with them like Pam, you might, you know, forget. You might change your perception over time. Other researchers have found that it helps on the margins and much more so in down ballot races compared to the presidency. One of the researchers I was talking about last night in my class said that a lot of TV ads are pretty useless, but if you are a candidate with little to no name recognition, TV ads can be very effective at helping people just know you, especially in those down ballot races where people may not have even paid, you know, researched any of the candidates, but it's like the name, you know, check the box. Also, uh, ads are also creeping into streaming TV. So (laughs) you can't really escape them even if you go online. Those ads can be cheaper and campaigns love them because you can target them a lot more precisely. You could end up seeing a different ad from your next door neighbor depending on what you're watching. Although some of those streaming platforms like Disney and Netflix have banned political ad. Ad Impact, which we mentioned at the top, says about 15% of spending uh, this ad cycle will go to streaming services about the same as goes to Google and Facebook. So I'm so sorry, Pam, you are in Texas. That is a very contentious race. You might just want to plug your uh, ears and cover your eyes until the election day. Not watch any more TV. (laughs) All right. So the form for student loan forgiveness went live last week and we got this voicemail about it. My name is Tracy and I'm calling from La Cañada Flint Ridge, California. And I have a question about the federal student loan forgiveness program. What happens when you have a student who is in the middle of school right now? So Mm. in my case, I have a junior. She has some loans out for her first two years, but I know that there's going to be a new version. Is she able to apply for forgiveness for what she took out her freshman and sophomore year and then be under the new program for her junior and senior year? or if she only gets one or the other. All right, thank you so much. Have a good day, bye-bye. Okay, this is another great question. There is so much happening with student loans and student loan forgiveness programs and uh, debt cancellation right now. It can be very hard to keep track, but short answer, Basically, any federal student loans that you or your daughter took out on or before June 30th of this year, 2022, could definitely qualify for relief. It doesn't really matter if she's still in school or not. It just matters when the loans were taken out. It matters if they're federal, and it matters if you meet the income criteria, which is $125,000 for a single person and $250,000 for a married couple. And one other key here is if your daughter is still a dependent, it'll be your income that matters, not hers. Um, So if you think your loans, your daughter's loans might qualify, it's worth just like checking out the information, looking at the application on studentaid.gov. It's super short. It just opened and it will stay open through the end of next year. So definitely worth applying and uh, finding out because it's entirely likely that existing loans could qualify. Yeah, I know that's going to be helpful to so many people. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, Let's go ahead and skip to the last question, which is so much fun. Yes, this one is hilarious. It is specifically for you, Kimberly. We got it on Twitter from (laughs) Riley Wilson, who writes, As I was listening to the half full, half empty on this Friday's Make Me Smart, all I could think of was, what are Kimberly's thoughts on jokes for Halloween? Because I think it's weird that kids just get candy without having to tell a joke outside of St. Louis. Wait, tell me more, Kimberly. I don't know anything about this. (laughs) 
So I have to admit, I truly did not realize this was only a St. Louis thing until today. I thought this was everyone. So in St. Louis, for the most part, if you want candy at Halloween, you have to tell a joke. Now, Wait, at every little house kids, that you go to? Yeah. Now, that's <laughs> it's not always enforced. I mean, when in my neighborhood growing up, you either had to have on a costume, which was considered the trick, or if you didn't have a costume or like a fake costume where it's like you put a sheet over yourself and it wasn't anything <laughs> where you tried, then you have to tell a joke, you know, which is a different kind of trick if you want the treat. And so you either have a good costume or you tell a joke. In some cases, they want the joke regardless. And I did not realize this was only a St. Louis thing. And so I love going it. I down think the we rabbit hole, it everywhere thanks else. to... Yeah, and so uh, NPR has a piece on this from 2011, where I guess somebody moved to St. Louis and, and came across this phenomenon <laughs> and was very confused. And, you know, some other St. Louis outlets have covered this over the years. But who doesn't have jokes ready on Halloween? Oh, I don't. I've I never had a joke ready on a, Halloween. I didn't know this, was a th this wasn't a thing. It's like fun. I, I'm just thinking back, like, I'm trying to remember what some of our jokes were. I was going to say, we usually did knock, knock. We did, did a lot of knock, knock jokes when I was a kid. I mean, we always had costumes, but we still would do the knock, knock jokes sometimes. But I don't, I don't remember any of them at this point. But I do remember going trick or treating with my dad and my sister once when I was probably like, I don't know, seven or eight. And there was a big funeral home on the corner, like a like a block away from our house. And it's like this big old mansion that was converted into a funeral home. And my dad was like, let's go in there to get candy. We're terrified. We walk in and there's like this big entryway and it's dark and it's nighttime. And there's one person sitting behind this giant desk in the entryway. We go over there and we're like, trick or treat, king size candy bars king nice. size candy bars and because they, they were basically like if you, yes they did and they're basically <laughs> like if you are brave enough to go into a funeral home on halloween you get the king size candy bars it was such a win okay i'm done <laughs> amazing thank you so much for that question oh, riley because i did not know about this and i'm really glad that we got to this today yeah, <laughs> but that is it for us today on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We will be back tomorrow to make you smart on the news of the day and make you smile, too. And if you all have any Halloween jokes, send, them, send, us, send us those. We love them. Yeah, send your jokes. Um, and in the meantime, keep sending your questions also. Our email is makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 508-U-B-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera with help this week from Tony Wagner. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's show is engineered by Jake Cherry, Ben Tolliday, and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Donna Tam is director of On Demand. And don't worry, Bridget Bodner is still here too. She never goes. Always here. Can't lose Bridget. I'm going to now call everyone in St. Louis and be like, did you know that it's just us? <laughs> <laughs> Report back. I want to know. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine 
I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.